Find other great podcasts like this one at podmoth.network. Honest conversations with interesting people. Hi, I'm Mike from the Genuine Chit Chat Podcast, and I talk to a wide variety of guests across an eclectic range of interesting topics. People I've spoken to include a magister from the Church of Satan, a blind Australian filmmaker, a puppeteer from Labyrinth and Dark Crystal, and I also speak to musicians of all kinds of genres, authors, actors, podcasters. Really, there is no limit to who I speak to, and the subject matter is endless. So if you believe in the art of conversation and want to hear different people talking about their passions, then this is the perfect show for you. You can find Genuine Chit Chat anywhere you listen to podcasts, and there's some video versions on YouTube, so there's no reason not to tune in. What's up, you guys? I'm Catherine. And I'm Haley. And we are Saturdays for the Ghouls. A Podmoth podcast. How are you to Haley? Alright. We're gonna give the spooky babes some spooky vibes today, aren't we? Spooky babes. We're gonna tell you some spooky stories. We're gonna try to give you some spooky vibes like you're sitting around a campfire with your besties. All in spooky stories. So just sit back and relax and get... Do you hear the campfire crackle? Do you hear the sound of the songs? And we'll see you in your nightmares. The deadly virus discovered in dogs has now been confirmed as transmissible to humans. Infected dogs will have distinctive red eyes. Government has ordered all dogs to be surrendered immediately. Yeah, over my dead fucking body. The first ones to surrender their dogs were the ones with families. I watched as the dogs, in all their innocence, would wag their tails as they were taken in government vans. Others in my street weren't so forthcoming. Even with the known risk that an infected dog would certainly lead to the death of both the dog and its owner, people still kept their dogs. I could hear them at night. Dogs would bark at their owner, pleading with them to stop. Dogs, however, having been cooped up in Saturday, couldn't help themselves. They would bark and bark and then a whimper. The silence afterwards would make me sick. After a while, the government sent in the army. I watched through my curtain as our trucks arrived. Cooper tried his best to look through as well, but he knew that if he laid still instead, he would get a treat. Cooper was a good boy. And being the good boy that he was, he didn't mind when I took him to the basement and tied his legs together. He also didn't mind when I wrapped his snout in cloth and gently put him in the closet. It's all right, Coop, I said as gently as I could. I'll get you out as soon as I can. I pushed an old bookcase over the closet door and went back upstairs. The army didn't bother to knock. They didn't have to. Four soldiers came barging in, guns pointed, and quickly searched the house. They went to all my rooms, the backyard, the attic. You there, the sergeant said, pointing the muzzle of his gun at me. Open up the basement. Stevens, go with him. I kept calm and I kept silent. I walked down the stairs to the basement with Stevens following closely behind. He searched the room but found nothing. But just as he was about to leave... Scratch, scratch. Damn it, Coop. Stevens stopped and faced the bookcase, using his back and keeping his gun pointed at me. He moved the bookcase, revealing the closet door. Slowly, he opened the door and there was Cooper. Silly thing had managed to free one of his paws, and now there he was, gun pointed at him, 
offering the soldier a handshake. I clenched my fist. Steven stared at my dog. I took a step forward, ready to strike, but then Stevens lowered his gun and shook Cooper's hand. Stevens, the sergeant yelled, what have you got? Stevens stood up. Nothing down here, Sarge. Stevens turned, gave me a nod, and left the basement. I walked over to Cooper and gently rubbed his head. A tear rolled down my face as he looked up at me with those big, adorable red eyes. In February of 2021, my ex and I were feeling so cooped up in the house because of COVID, and I wanted to travel a bit. I'm 19 at the time, and she's 18. My brother had some mental health issues, and I didn't want to leave him out, so we invited him along. We were driving from Low Country, South Carolina, all the way to the Grand Canyon. We did all this in one day. Me and my brother traded off driving throughout the day and night. I'd say it was about 1 or 2.30 a.m., and my brother wanted me to drive at this point. We were almost to New Mexico, just on the border of Texas and New Mexico. I'd been driving for 30 minutes at this point. I wasn't the slightest bit tired, but out of the blue, I started feeling insanely tired. I could barely keep my eyes open. We were driving about 80 miles per hour at this point. I saw something in my rearview mirror running on all fours across the interstate. I thought I was tripping out. I looked in my rearview mirror for about two minutes and I saw nothing. I kept driving. As soon as I looked away from the rearview mirror on the passenger side of the car, there was the same figure running at our speed around 80 miles an hour. I was freaking the fuck out and I screamed at my brother to wake up and look outside the window and when he looked there was nothing there. I suddenly wasn't tired anymore. I thought I was going crazy. I told my brother he needs to drive because I'm really tired. We pulled off at the next exit, 10 miles down the interstate. At this point, we made it to New Mexico, and there was nothing in sight but oil fields and desert. Oh, not even a gas station in sight as we were switching seats. I saw it again out in the desert, maybe 150 yards away. It was massive. I yelled at my brother to drive and get the fuck out of here. And to this day, I had no idea what it was. I assume it was a Wendigo. I'm just glad we made it out. It was a modest home perched upon a hill, overlooking a meadow of wildflowers. It loomed over the neighborhood, seeing him grow up within its shadows. Even as a child, he knew he'd someday reside within those walls. A series of tragic events led the home to market. The previous owners found hanging from the basement rafters. Piles of unpaid, unopened bills were found lying beneath their feet. Sam offered well above asking price, cash, and took ownership of what he always believed to be his. Within a few years, a wife followed and then a pair of twin daughters. Everyone but Sam found the home unnerving. The shadows crept along the ceiling with sentience, lingering far too long. Sam didn't care. He loved the home and everything it was. Even the gruff elderly letter carrier that delivered the weekly mail was seen as a reason to love everything the home encompassed. When his daughters were five, his wife fell ill. She wailed through the night. This home is wicked. It has cursed us. But Sam wouldn't listen. Even after her death, he remained unmoored. The letters from grieving in-laws and well-wishers piled up and remained unopened. Then it came for his daughters. Vanished into thin air while reading comics from the local newspaper on the cellar floor. Whispers flew through the town. Some suspected Sam. Some suspected the house. Slowly, the neighbors fled, and within time, Sam lived in a ghost town. The octogenarian postman is only source of human contact. When Sam reached the age of 69, 
The now ancient postman found his body swinging from an old oak with withering branches that blocked out the sun. A letter sat at his feet with great trepidation. The postman bent under his still swaying legs and tenderly gripped the note. To whomever, I will keep this short. My life has come, my time has come, and I find no reason to delay fate. This house is not cursed. Monsters are not real. It is the folly of mankind to not understand our nature. We invent stories to hide from the truth. Every death attributed to this home as far back as my childhood leads back to me. I am the monster that looks in the dark. Samuel L. Percy III. A wicked smile crossed Postman's face. What a fool you've always been, he whispered. The sound of crunching gravel signaled the arrival of a tan sedan. Two children and a married couple piled out onto the sweltering driveway. In a flash, Sam was kept down from the tree and hidden behind a thicket of trees. With the flick of a wrist, the postman tore off his uniform, now 40 years younger, to reveal a burgundy satin suit. He must be the Robinson family. Welcome to the home of your dreams, your forever home. I'm beyond confident you'll find love at first sight. A cold wind blew the rafters as the door was loudly closed shut. It was supposed to be a routine camping trip. My wife, two kids, and I had been doing this every year for as long as I can remember. There's something special about camping in the fall air and the sound of twigs crunching underfoot, but this year, something sinister found us. We set up camp in our usual spot, a clearing by a small stream. We were all excited about spending a few days disconnected from the world, just enjoying nature and each other's company. We roasted marshmallows, played board games, and went on hikes. Everything was perfect until the second night. I was awakened by a strange noise outside of our tent. It sounded like something was dragging itself through the underbrush. I assumed it was a deer or a bear, so I shook it off and went back to sleep. Then the noises continued, growing louder and more persistent. I tried to ignore them, and they kept getting closer and closer. And that's when I saw it, a grotesque creature. Unlike anything I've ever seen before, its skin was molted and leathery. Its eyes were black and soulless. Its limbs were twisted and gnarled with horrifyingly long and thin fingers ended in razor sharp talons. It stood at the entrance of our tent, staring at us with an intense, unblinking gaze. I tried to scream, but my voice caught in my throat. My wife and kids were awake now, huddled together in fear. The creature didn't move or make a sound. It just stared at us as if it was studying us. The next few hours was a blur of terror. The creature didn't attack us physically, but it tormented us mentally. It whispered horrible things in our ears, things that made us doubt our own sanity and question our grip on reality. It showed us visions of our worst nightmares, playing our deepest fears and insecurities. We were trapped, helpless and alone in the middle of the woods with this monster. We couldn't run or fight back. We were at its mercy. It was like it was feeding off of our fear and desperation growing stronger with each passing moment. Finally, as as dawn began to break, the thing retreated back to the woods, leaving us shaken and traumatized. We packed our things and left the campsite as quickly as we could, never looking back. That experience changed us all in ways we can't fully comprehend. We stopped going camping, stopped seeking the beauty of nature. The memory of that creature haunted us, a constant reminder of the darkness that lurks just beyond the edge of our perception. It's almost May 8th and I think I'm in danger. My sister Martha vanished when I was 12. 
It was a normal day otherwise. We ate breakfast with our parents, did some chores, and when we were done, we asked if we could go ride our bikes to the park. Our parents seemed nervous and told us to stick close to the house. I was pretty indifferent, but I remember Martha was furious. She stormed to her room and slammed the door. Mom and Dad tried to talk to her, but she sulked in her room silently for the rest of the day. When Mom yelled to her to come down for dinner, she didn't answer. My father knocked on her door a few times, but Martha didn't answer. After increasingly frantic calls didn't get her attention, he threw his shoulder against the door, breaking the lock and sending it reeling into the room. Martha was gone. The police came that night. I talked to them for hours, answering questions about where she may have gone, but I had no clue. She never mentioned running away, other than a little teenage angst. She was a happy girl. She never came home. The police stopped coming by and I silently accepted that we would never see her again. When I tried to mention her, my parents would shut down. Late one night, though, I heard them talking quietly in their bedroom as I stood in the hallway. Her window was locked, my mother said. Even the cops mentioned it. You know she didn't run away. Maybe she did, my father replied. It doesn't mean... It doesn't... It doesn't mean... It doesn't mean she won't come back. Yes, it does, my mother erupted. None of your family called to say any of their family vanished. It finally happened to us and now our baby is gone. I never asked my parents what they were talking about, but I wish I had. Maybe they would have explained it to me. They divorced the year I left for college. Most of the years after Martha had vanished were filled with silent dinners. My mother always seemed so mad at my father and I couldn't understand why. I was shocked when my father drunkenly called five years ago to tell me my mother had disappeared. The cops did a welfare check when she stopped showing up for work. Her purse and keys were still there. My father sobbed, muttering an apology that I couldn't understand. He went missing a year ago tomorrow. The same set of circumstances. A detective told me they would put out a bulletin with his photo, but I knew I would never see him again. After my mother went missing, I cleaned out her apartment. On the bedside table was a journal. The last entry said that someone in my father's family vanished every year on May 8th. They all vanished on the same day each year. I don't know how many relatives he has left, but it's nearly midnight and I think someone's watching my house from the street. For context, I'm a woman living alone in an apartment that's located on the ground floor, so my balcony is very visible to others to see. Like every night, I work at 4 a.m., so I leave around 3.40 a.m. Unfortunately, in France, they decide to turn off the lights from 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. But thankfully for me, the landlord where I live turned on the lights just for me from 3 to 4. It's very dim, but I'm thankful for it still. This Thursday night, I leave like I always do, go to my car, lock it, turned on my lights, and something caught my eye. So I looked up and I thought it was just a cat jumping from my balcony because they love to come by and look around and leave. It was not a cat. It was a man standing next to my balcony. I think that the light surprised him, and I'm looking at him walking away from me on the grass, but he can't leave that way. So I'm staring at him, scared and calmly crying, not knowing what to do for like 10 seconds. But then I can see movement again, and it's him walking towards me, looking at me quickly and then just continuing to walk to the main road like nothing happened. He takes one last look at me in my car before I lose sight of him. 
He was also wearing black sweats and a camo jacket. It's really weird, isn't it? I don't know what he was doing there. If he was sleeping on my plastic sofa on my balcony, or I don't know, but I can't stop thinking about his face looking at me, or what could have happened if it was pitch black outside. I don't know, and I want to make a police report, but they say I can't because there's no damage. Since then, every night, I run like crazy to my car with pepper spray in my hand. Also, I bought a surveillance camera on my balcony just to check before going out at night because I'm super paranoid and I'm kind of developing OCD. I have to look and check outside before going to sleep. Dear random man, let's not meet again. Rules of the graveyard shift. Dear Thomas, due to a family emergency, I won't be able to cover my usual graveyard shift at the morgue tonight. Since you haven't worked this particular shift before, I've compiled a list of essential rules to follow. These guidelines are crucial to ensure a safe and uneventful night. Please read them carefully and adhere to them throughout your shift. Number one, upon entering the morgue, you must greet each storage chamber out loud. Address them as Mr. or Miss, followed by their last name. This gesture is believed to maintain peace and respect among the residents. Number two, if you see a flickering light in any of the hallways, do not attempt to fix it. Instead, avoid that hallway for the remainder of your shift. Some entities are known to tamper with electricity. Number three, while performing your tasks, you may hear whispers or soft laughter. It's apparent it's imperative that you do not respond or engage in conversation, no matter how friendly or familiar the voices may sound. Four, occasionally the storage chambers might appear to change order. If this happens, close your eyes and count to 10. When you open them, the chambers should have returned to their original positions. Number five, if you encounter a small, shadowy figure darting around corners, do not chase it. This elusive being thrives on attention and may lead you into dangerous situations. Number six, never enter the autopsy room between 3.15 a.m. and 3.45 a.m. During this half-hour window, the room is considered off-limits. No further explanation can be provided, but it's crucial you follow the rule. Number seven, if you receive a phone call from someone claiming to be locked inside the morgue, do not unlock any doors or attempt to find them. Instead, call the police and wait for their arrival. Number eight, in the event that the temperature in the morgue drops significantly and your breath becomes visible, retreat to the main office and lock the door. The temperature should normalize within 15 minutes. Number nine, should you find a rose placed on top of any storage chamber, Remove it immediately and dispose of it in the hazardous waste bin. These flowers are known to carry malevolent energies. Number 10. Lastly, if you hear footsteps approaching but see no one, quickly find a reflective surface and stand in front of it. The entity responsible for the footsteps can only be seen through reflections and will vanish once it's spotted. Due to the urgency of the family emergency, I will be unreachable during your shift. It's essential that you rely on these guidelines and your instincts to navigate the night. Trust yourself and remember to follow these rules closely to ensure a safe and uneventful night at the morgue. Sincerely, Dr. William Foster. So this happened about a week ago. My memory is still pretty fresh. 
My boyfriend and I were in a car on the way to get dinner, chatting casually. Everything was normal. We pulled up to the red light and somebody caught my attention. I'd say between 15 and 18 years old, walking on the sidewalk across the street. I noticed him because he looked like he was straight out of 2004. Baggy jeans, gray beanie, black t-shirt over a long sleeve white shirt. I thought it was funny, figured he was some kind of skater and I pointed it out to my boyfriend and we made some joke about the guy being from the 2000s. We both agreed he looked out of place and that's when we started joking about he must be a time traveler. I said something like, he's probably thinking, whoa, dude, where am I? And as soon as I said it, the guy started to look around like he was confused. We were in a car across the busy street from him. No way he heard us. We remarked that it was weird as we watched the guy look around confused for a few moments. Then we both looked away for no more than half a second. I don't remember why. And we turned back and the guy was gone. First, we laughed about it and thought it was funny. But the more we looked, the more we realized he had nowhere to go. He really just completely disappeared. I can't stress this enough. We barely looked away and had nowhere to go that we wouldn't be able to see him. We both freaked out and drove most of the rest of the way in silence while we thought about time travel. We really haven't talked about it since, but we agree that it was obviously really weird. I don't know why he picked me. There are a million out there just like me, but my master says I'm lucky. I caught his eye. We've been together ever since. We are driving in a car. Where? Where? I don't know. It's always some abandoned building, a dark alley, a secluded place to find his next victim. When I come out, my master is pointing a gun at someone. I don't recognize them. They're on their knees, sobbing, begging. They always beg. This is when my master plays his cruel game. I might kill you. I might not. He looks at me. I know it's me who will have to make the decision. I'd rather he just shoot them be over with it. Why does he have to involve me? Why do their lives always end up in my hands? What will it be? My world is spinning. It's like I'm a roller coaster. It takes all of two seconds and I decide. They live! The man on his knees breathes a big sigh of relief. He thinks I've saved him. My master stares at me, angry at first, then smiles. This is always the second part of his twisted game. Why don't we try again? He hits me hard this time. The world is practically vibrating. I already decided he should live. Why do I have to choose again? I'm dizzy and quickly decide he dies. Bingo! My master pulls the trigger, sending the innocent man's brain splattering against the stained concrete. No matter how many times I decide they should live, he waits until I choose death. In the end, they always die. I couldn't do it without you, he says to me. He shines me on his lapel, gives me a kiss, and puts me in his breast pocket so I don't get mixed in with the other change. My girlfriend was staying at her parents, so I, 27 male, was at the flat alone. Around 3 a.m., I'm awoken up by a loud slam. I quickly jolt up. My bedroom door is wide open and I see a bald man walk straight past my room into the living room. I must have forgotten to lock the door that night. I jumped out of bed quickly and immediately my mind made the decision to stand in front of the front door. I figured there's only one way out. If he's taken anything, I can try to stop him. In my haste, I also made the subconscious decision not to put any clothes on so I could get to the door quicker. So I was standing there completely naked. 
Anyway, the dude comes stumbling back to the door, his handful of Stella Artois cradled in his arm, half-spoke cigarette in his mouth, and a plastic shopping bag hanging from one of his hands. I asked him what he was doing in my flat, which he replied, I'm really sorry. I'm so sorry. Though he could hardly get his words out, he was clearly absolutely fucked. I asked him to show me the contents of his bag, which didn't have any of our stuff in. Before proceeding to let him out of the flat, locking the door this time, I'm assuming he was just out of his mind on whatever he was on and walked into the wrong flat. There was a point where one of the cans slipped from his grip and he had to bend down to pick it up, making him directly eye level with my bare waist. It was a very awkward moment and I'm sure the poor guy doesn't remember so he hasn't been completely scarred. Anyway, I go back to bed and I could hardly sleep the rest of the night, my heart absolutely thumping. I will say it gave me some confidence in my fight or flight response. You never really know what you'll be in this sort of situation. I was quite proud of the fact that I blocked his exit. When I was nine years old, my uncle Kevin died in a car crash. I was in the car with him, as was my aunt Claire, and we were on our way to the hospital. I'm sorry, were the last words he said to me. My mother had died during childbirth and my father committed suicide not long after. His brother, my uncle Kevin, raised me from birth. When I was eight years old, I got into my first fight. Typical schoolyard bullshit. I can't remember what the fight was about, but I remember the pain. The pain from the almighty blow to my stomach that turned my bruise I received the day before into an even bigger one. When I was seven years old, I broke my first bone. Again, I don't remember much, just the pain and blackness. I woke up in the hospital with a cast around my arm and my uncle staring down at me with shaking hands. What happened? I asked as I struggled to sit myself up. Just then, the plastic curtain flew open and a beautiful nurse appeared. So, how are we doing in here? Been falling down some stairs, I see. That's quite a few bruises you got going on. Did you at least do a good landing? She teased and winked at me, and I managed a small smile. I'm okay, I lied. He's a tough kid, aren't you, George? My uncle chimed in as he lightly patted me on the shoulder. He's such a clumsy kid. All I could think was coward. When I was six years old, I received my first real lesson in lying. It was my birthday. My uncle was sat on my bedroom floor with his legs crossed and his hands tightly squeezed together, slowly rubbing back and forth from the ever-building anxiety. Okay, George, I need you to listen. Downstairs are your friends and their parents. Now they might ask you about your bruises and I want you to lie, okay? I want you to say that you were playing in the garden and you hurt yourself. Okay? Okay? Even at this age, I knew he wanted me to lie to protect himself. I nodded. I want to hear you say you'll promise. Please, George. You know what'll happen to you if you don't. I promise. Coward. When I was five years old, I realized how awful and painful my life was going to be. George! Shouted my uncle. Come downstairs, please. His voice seemed shaky. As I turned the corner, that was when the first blow struck. Clean and perfectly centered, and followed by a sickening, evil laugh. I was punched in the face from a very drunken Aunt Claire, and my Uncle Kevin was now crouched and sobbing in the corner like the coward he was. When I was nine years old, my Uncle Kevin died in a car crash. I'm sorry for the last words he said to me. 
Please don't leave me with her, were my last words to him. Seems like a lot of people have scary experiences with Ouija boards, and here's mine. Back on Halloween of 2019, I was at a party with my friend Alex, and a couple of his friends were all having a good time jamming out to spooky Halloween music. We had all been partying pretty good, and some of us were getting tired. But we wanted to play a board or a card game or something to end the night with. One of Alex's friends, who will have her name changed to Lexi for privacy reasons, said we said we should do a Ouija board, like in the movies. Now, I grew up in a pretty standard Christian home and was always warned about how, was always warned around Halloween time every year. Stay away from Ouija boards, blah, blah, blah. They're evil, blah, blah, blah. But I didn't really buy into it very much. Well, none of us actually had a Ouija board or knew where to find one. So Lexi suggested that we make our own. So of course, being dumb teenagers, we looked up a design and took a Sharpie and drew one. Using an old guitar pick as a pointer, we sat down and started asking questions. The first questions were dumb, like which one of us is the dumbest? Which one of us will make most money after high school? Just dumb questions, we would get a bunch of no's, like the board was annoyed or something. Well, after a while of dumb questions, Lexi thought it would be a good idea to kick it up a notch. Lexi asked the board if there was anyone who would like to talk to us. Then the whole mood in the room changed. It felt colder, and everyone, for some reason, felt uneasy. The pointer slowly moved over to yes. Almost everyone felt super uncomfortable. But one of our friends, who I'll call Mike, wasn't convinced. He was just convinced someone was moving the pointer to scare everyone. Mike decided to conduct a little test and asked the board to name a dead relative that no one in the room knew about. Right then, the board spelled out Eleanor. Everyone started freaking out because we all knew Mike's grandmother and her name was Irene. Apparently, Eleanor was his great-great-aunt who had passed on before his mom had died. And at that point, we were scared shitless and asked what the board wanted. The board started to spell out extremely vulgar obscenities and weird no one knew. We quickly said goodbye and ended the session. We turned out the lights and everyone was so freaked out we threw out the board. None of us have touched a board since. Before any of this happened, my mom never believed in ghosts. Not so much that people stopped existing after death, as she still believes in heaven, but she didn't think the souls would stick around or get stuck with us. I believed and still do believe in ghosts, which she thought was weird until about a year ago. I had moved back in with my mom after college while waiting to get an apartment of my own. Her house, which she bought the year before, isn't that old, late 2000s or early 2010s. It's small and serves as a nice place to live after she retired. As far as we knew, the previous resident had died while in a nursing home, not on the property, though there might have been a previous resident, the first after the house was built, since we occasionally got mail for the same guy. Let's call him D. We'll come back to him later. So here's what happened. It's late at night and I'm getting ready for bed. Hair in rollers, clay mask on, putting body moisturizer on my arms while listening to my music on my speaker. Mom's already in bed and her bedroom is on the other side of the house. Just as I'm halfway through my routine, I hear her yell my name. And it wasn't in the way that parents yell when you're in trouble or need you to put away the groceries. It sounded like something big happened. I think it's her old dog using the bedroom as a bathroom again, so I head over. When I walk in, my mom's white as a sheet. 
looking around like she's looking for something. I ask her what's up, and she is freaked out, saying that a man was in her room. I'm weirded out since no one could get into her room. Windows too tiny for a person to climb through, and I had just checked the front and back door's locks before I went to the bathroom. She goes on to say that she was lying in bed, waiting to fall asleep, when she looked over and saw a man coming towards her from her bathroom, hands stretched out to her. Described it like the drawing of the evil uncle from Twitches. She bolted up out of fear or to scream for help because he looked so real, only for him to just not be there when she moved. I joked that she had a ghost in her room and she told me not to say that because she was thinking the same thing, but didn't want it to be true. My mom got up and was pacing around the room for a bit and tried to go back to sleep with the light on, but ended up sleeping on her recliner that night. She did go back to sleeping in her room after that night, but only for a couple nights before she had a flight across the country to visit my siblings. I agreed to sleep in her room since that's where her pet's kennels are, and joked that I would tell her if I ran into the ghost. Kind of mean on my part since the experience really shook my mom, but it felt kind of funny how serious she got and insisted it was a ghost after not believing in them before. However, my first night, something just felt wrong when I turned off the lights and settled into the bed. I felt a sense of impeding dread while laying there, and something told me not to fall asleep. It was so creepy, and despite no logical reason to be, I was scared to go to sleep in my mom's room. Like something was waiting for me the second I lost consciousness, and I was a stupid character who was walking around the haunted house while the ghost got closer. Too spooked to sleep, I turned on the light and grabbed some sage and moon-charged crystals I have in my room, putting slash burning them around the bedroom and her bathroom doorways. Then I texted my mom and told her, yep, her room is haunted and that something was scaring me from going to sleep. She was not happy to hear that I got spooked as well and needed crystals, sage, and the lights on to sleep. Right before she came home, my mom did a lot of research and got crystals and a cross that were supposed to help filter out strong negative energy. She brought it home, replaced my protection stuff with hers, and even made a proclamation her first night back in the room that this was her home, and if the spirit was going to scare or hurt her again, he was not welcomed and had to leave. Thankfully, it seemed that all of it worked as she hadn't had an experience like that again. So who is this spirit? We honestly don't know. I suspect it was Dee because he was the first resident and might have come back if he died but we don't know if he is actually dead, so it may not be him. Another explanation is that the spirit was invited in a few weeks prior when my mom was super sick. It wasn't COVID or something that needed the hospital, but she couldn't leave her room for over a week and only got better after about 10 days. We read that sometimes being super sick can attract negative spiritual attention, and since she was stuck in her room for the time, it might have settled there instead of another part of or the whole house. But since then, my mom still affirms that something tried to grab her that night and hasn't moved her protection since. The year 2018, me and my me and my three other friends, we were all males in our early 20s, decided to travel to Bali for a week since it was cheap and we had some time, so why not? Our itinerary includes sightseeing, trying local foods, mountain climbing, visiting bars at the beach, and basically a typical vacation basically a typical vacation in Indonesia. It was honestly quite a surreal experience. The country is absolutely beautiful and the food was amazing. The only issue about the trip were the locals. Drugs were really prominent there, especially mushrooms. The streets were filled with druggies dying to sell us their drugs. 
I'm not exaggerating when I say this. One dude even grabbed my arm because I ignored his two-for-one deal for a one-way trip to meet Jesus. I shrugged him off while my friends laughed it off, suggesting that I may be passing up a chance to meet our Lord and Savior. He looked rabid and frantic, like he was about to pounce onto me like a dog diagnosed with rabies. I didn't feel too afraid. We were confident we could handle them since half of them were not even sober. However, that was only the tip of the iceberg. The horror starts when we get back to our Airbnb. We had an early day the next morning and we were exhausted. The place was extremely cheap and it didn't even have a proper locking mechanism for the door. It had two wood doors which swing inward and the only way to lock them was to wedge a wooden block through the holes mounted on the door. It was quite a primitive lock, but I guess it got, I guess it got the job done. Everything was going well until the last night of our trip when we realized that the wooden block was missing. We looked everywhere for it, to no avail. I just figured one of us must have misplaced it somewhere. We settled for using a selfie stick. I know that sounds like a horrible idea, since we didn't have anything else that fits the holes to wedge the door closed. We turned in for the night, seemingly not to expect anything, since we had already stayed there for six days with no issues. I woke up to a strange clicking sound in the dead of the night. I got out of bed and I thought maybe it's one of the guys, so I nonchalantly approached the noise. My friends were all sleeping, so I decided to investigate the cause of the noise. The ruckus seemed to be coming from the door, so I headed towards them, feeling extremely confused. Who could be at our doorstep at this time of night? I noticed that the doors were slightly open and the selfie stick was horribly deformed. I peeked outside and I saw three people staring through the gap between the doors. They were really close to the entrance and they were attempting to push the doors open. I yelled at them, questioning their intentions as I noticed one of them was holding the wooden block. I was shocked and puzzled at the situation as I recognized one of the men. He did the overall cleaning for the Airbnbs and the pathways during the day, so there was no reason for him to be here at 3 a.m. The other dude was asking if the wooden block belonged to us as they allegedly found it outside of our Airbnb. I definitely spelled bullshit as there was some as there was absolutely no reason to do that at 3 a.m. I called for my guys and the three men immediately ran for it. I clued in the guys on the circumstances and we stayed up until the morning in case they tried anything funny. We decided to report this to reception about their employee, but the description I gave them was not synonymous with theirs. They told me that their housekeepers that they hired consisted of only females in their late 30s and 40s. This sent shivers down our spines as we came to realize that we had let a complete imposter in and out of our rooms while we were out. Luckily, nothing important was lost. We got out of the situation safely. I can't imagine what would have happened if I didn't wake up on that fateful night as the doors were just being opened. I was just grateful that that was our last night there. My mom was giving me rides to work. On Saturdays, I worked morning shift so I had to be at work by 5 a.m. That means we had to leave the house no later than 4.30. It was still dark outside, like pitch black and very cold. That morning, as my mom drove me to work, from a distance I could see a figure getting ready to cross the road. As we got closer, I can see it was a young girl. I thought to myself, damn, caught her doing the walk of shame. She had no shoes, a long white shirt, like if she was wearing a man's white tee. It was big on her. It looked like she had no pants on, but you could barely see she had these short jean shorts under her large shirt. She wasn't wearing shoes. 
My mom started talking shit in Spanish, like what kind of girl walks around the streets at this hour dressed like that. She was walking now in the middle of the street, super slow to the point my mom had to stop like 10 feet from her because she was still in the street now blocking us. When my mom stopped the car, the girl came to a complete stop, but wasn't facing us. She was facing in the direction she was crossing. As we now were close, I could see her skin was a real bluish gray. Her hair was black. It looked wet and tangled like she just got out of the shower. My mom was about to honk at her when she slowly turns her head to look right at us. Her hair was covering her face. She looked like the girl from the ring. The part that I'll never forget was that she moved her hair out of the way and she had no face. Like nothing, it was just all smooth. Like slender man. No eyes, no mouth, no nose. It just looked smooth. My mom started to have a panic attack. I literally felt my heart drop. I now was focused on calming my mom down. The girl looked at us for like two to three seconds and took off running. She didn't move at irregular speeds, but now she was active. I never saw anything like that in my life. Till this day, my mom and I can't explain what that was. I guess I was sharing my story in hopes maybe someone else has seen something similar, something with no face. I was about 20 and he was 18. I used to drive a 97 Chrysler. I mention this because it was a cute convertible. It was black with pink and purple flames and totally looked like a girl's car. My brother used to have long black hair. I have long blonde hair. We were headed to our friend's place around 8 p.m. and pulled into a Circle K to get gas. We live in a big city, so there's nothing sketchy about it. We'd done this about a hundred times. Someone approached us from behind as I put gas in the car. This dude saw two long-haired people in the car and it looked like it belonged to a girl. He approached me and my brother. He approached me and my brother opened the passenger door. Dude was surprised when a six-foot man got out of the car. He said, my girlfriend's in the hospital. It's a mile down the road. I just need a ride. We grew up in this area and I told my brother under my breath, there's no hospital where he's staying, where he's staying. As he pulled a steak knife out of his waistband, telling us, I just need a ride. I remember my brother stepping in front of me, telling the guy to put the knife down. It was probably 30 seconds of conversation, but it felt like forever. The guy started talking to himself, waving the knife, and then literally walked away. We got back in the car, got to our friend's house, and then called our parents who came to our friend's place and told us to call the cops. Here's the kicker. When we called the cops and explained what happened, they found the guy in the neighborhood, in the neighboring parking lot, sleeping. They told us they couldn't do anything because he was currently not being violent, and they didn't have any other evidence other than our words. My mother lost her shit talking to that cop. We're safe, and that's all that matters. Rachel gazed up at the star-filled sky one last time. It was beautiful, and the sheer expanse of it boggled her mind. The concept of infinity was almost dizzying to comprehend. Maybe death wasn't the end. Maybe. She thought as her eyes moved to the full moon. She didn't realize how much she took multiple pleasures in life, such as looking up at a clear night sky or smelling the air brought on by a hot summer. A flowery, grassy scent that she had never known until now how much she loved the aroma of. It was natural and clean, just like death. She rubbed her hand over the bump on her stomach. She could feel it moving about frantically inside of her, as if 
clawing to get out. The pain was getting worse, but these were the tortures she had to endure. It was her motherly duty. Birthing is a bloody affair, but it is also beautiful. Rachel reminded herself of the beauty more than the suffering of it all. It was a marvelous thing to bring new life into this world, and that was the reason she was trying to smile through the horrific, ripping feeling inside of her. It was so bad now that she was balled up on the floor. She prayed to live long enough just to lay eyes upon her baby, if only for just a few seconds. But she was certain that death was only minutes away. Blood trickled down her legs and seeped into the soil. Come now, baby, mummy's ready. The movement inside of her suddenly became more frantic. The pain was so unbearable that Rachel bit the tip of her tongue off. Though the pain was nothing compared to the tearing of her cunt, as an opening was pried open with an audible crunching of bone and ripping of flesh. She screamed like she had never screamed before. Why does it have to hurt so much? Finally, the wail of a babe echoed out from the torn opening between her legs. Not a usual wail expected from a newborn, but a raspy, inhuman sound, which was more a squeal than anything else. The pale, wrinkly babe poked its head out first and tasted the air with both of its forked tongues and saw the world for the first time. Tiny, not yet developed marble-like eyes that bulged from their sockets. The babe pulled the rest of its worm-like body through the fleshy tunnel, squelching as it did so. Rachel, who was still very much conscious, finally got to gaze upon the thing which she had been carrying inside of her for nine months. Her prayer had been answered and her baby was beautiful. The babe slithered towards its smiling mother, Gagu Gaga. Its face came close to her own as its tongues took in the scent of its mother. Rachel admired her creation. She admired it right up to the moment it ate her eyes. I work inside of a hospital part of a prison. For anyone who's never been, the layout's like this. First, you go through the administrative building where everyone has to go through. Then there are the main gates to the prison. Once let through several gates, I had to walk inside the prison where the hospital is located to even more gates to be let inside. It's a daily occurrence for my shift. While leaving one day, I was kept later than others leaving for my shift because people always showed up late and if there's not enough staff, we could be mandated and I was number one on the list that day. I was made to wait to be sure that they actually showed up. So by the time the last person came on shift, everyone else was gone. There's two parts of the civilian walkway where we are intermingled with prisoners, beginning and the end. I made it most of the way out and noticed the door where some prisoners work was open and inside there were about seven or eight guys. Now, there's only supposed to be a certain number inside at any given time. So this right away raised red flags to me. Also, one was looking out the window like a lookout and one was standing at the door waving at me to go over there. I don't know why they thought I would fall for that. Still, I was sketched out. Seeing that I wasn't coming, one of them started coming from behind the door like he was going to grab me. And then I heard a gate. A seal was coming and they slammed the door shut immediately. I was so damned relieved 
Many staff have been assaulted in my time working there, and when this happened, it was becoming more and more common occurrence. This wasn't the only close call I've had there, but it was the only one where I didn't have my ring of keys to protect me, or a CO within earshot, so it was the scariest close call. 